Taking up your cross, suffering and sacrificing have been superseded with name it and claim it. And as dark as I know it looks out there, the good news is that God is advancing his kingdom. And it's very exciting to be a part of his great commission. It's Sheila Zielinski. The Sheila Zielinski Show, the only show to give you the truth behind the headlines, prophecy, and the deeper things of God. Now... Here is your host, End Time Watchwoman, Sheila Zielinski. Hello listeners and welcome to this very special Thursday, February 2015 edition of the Sheila Zielinski Show. I am your host, Sheila Zielinski. My guest today is the renowned climatologist, the author of The Deliberate Corruption of Climate Science. He's one of my favorites and he used to be my co-host and he's back to join me for an issue that I think is really the issue of the 21st century, and that is water. I said on a program the other day, you cannot survive without water. In fact, you need water just to think about water. Think about that, folks. Many people are aware that the globalists are attacking humanity in every aspect, on multiple fronts. We are getting pummeled, but what many do not realize, Tim, is that the globalist attacks upon humanity is every fabric of our lives at present. We know that in the U.S. the contrived water shortages are already underway. We know T. Boone Pickens is buying up the Ogallala Water Aquifer, the largest in North America. And it was really interesting. Jesse Ventura on his show Conspiracy Theory documented how Nestle is shipping Great Lake water to places like China at the expense of the American taxpayer. And I also documented how places like Northern and Central California and Southern Oregon, the EPA is systematically removing local farm and ranchers' access to water, and it goes on and on. But first of all, welcome to the program, Tim. Well, thank you, Sheila. Yeah, a big topic. What do you think the most important thing for people out there, Tim? I know a lot of people hear this phrase, water privatization, but they don't really understand what's going on. We know that there's a lot of these climate action plans, the word water scarcity. Get into water for people, Tim, and help people, especially the listeners that are new, really understand why this is such a critical issue. Well, I think the first thing I'd say, Sheila, is that uh, one of the ways that these people are controlling us, these globalists, is the sky is falling. 
that um, that you get people so fearful that they beg for governments to come and bail them out. As H.L. Mencken said uh, almost a 100 years ago now, that the uh, modern form of politics is to create a whole series of hobgoblins, none of them of which are true. And uh, that's what's going on now with the environmental issues. And, of course, one of the ways that you can get control of the world, because that's the objective, one world government, is to get a global issue and say, look, th this requires world government, that no national government can deal with it. Are there problems with water? Yes. Are there areas of shortage of water? Yes. Unequal distribution is the very nature of our planet and humanity. And of course, what we see with, with the globalists, along with their issue to control, is their argument that these inequalities have to be evened out, that it's the rich that are, are taking control and, and it's our job to prevent them doing that. So the major thing is for people to get a basic understanding of the issue because if they don't understand it, they're going to be easily duped. And that's, that's what's been going on. One of the ambitions that I've had, Sheila, is that I want to change the name of the planet from Earth to water. There is no shortage of water. There is inequitable distribution. But the kind of thinking that's going on is in Toronto in 1985, there was a conference on water and um, a fellow got up. And he lives in the driest part of Canada, in southern Alberta, which is basically semi-desert. He said, look, as a taxpaying Canadian, it is the government's duty to get me water and make water available to me at the cheapest rate possible. So you've got this sort of mentality built into things as well. So what we need to do is understand what the uh, issues are, the ones that we need to deal with and are manageable, and the ones that are simply being artificially created for this one world global agenda. One of the things that's happening is that as the climate change issue, the global warming issue, is losing its political potency, the predictions are wrong, people are starting to ask questions, but in the original list of issues that the Club of Rome said, we need issues that will unite us. And what they mean by that is we, we need issues that will allow us to control the whole world. But they listed global warming. This is not the, their book of 1992. They listed uh, global warming, famines, but they also listed water resources and water shortages. They're now transitioning to that. One of the issues with the Club of Rome was the limits to growth, that we're outgrowing the resources and we're at the peak of, of using these resources and the available resource is going to decline from here on out. And they did it with oil. So they start talking about peak oil. And what they meant by that was, well, look, we've pretty well exhausted all of the easily accessible and cheap oil. So we should start cutting back and switching to alternate energies. Now, the proof that this was political is because politics makes strange bedfellows. And the two groups that were very actively promoting peak oil, one was the, the oil companies, because they, it allowed them to say, hey, look, 
the oil is getting more and more expensive to recover. We're going to have to charge you more for it. So they could push the price up, even though um, they knew there were there were no shortages. And the reason they knew there were no shortages is because the amount of oil that they declared was available depended upon the price. If you said, look, we'll give you $30 a barrel for the oil, they'd say, well, okay, then we've got this much reserve. If you say, no, we'll give you $70 a barrel, suddenly the amount of reserve increased. So they knew there was no shortage. Saudi Arabia has never, ever told the world how much resources they've got. So the whole peak oil thing was completely artificially created, but it was to the benefit of the oil companies. At the other end of the spectrum, it was to the benefit of the environmentalists because they could say, look, we're running out of this oil, so we should quit using it and switch to alternate energies now. So here you had this bizarre situation that completely opposite people with different agendas were exploiting the same thing. And that tells you how political and how hysterical this whole uh, situation has become. But they about two years ago, they started to talk about peak water. They started applying that same terminology to global water supplies and so on. There is absolutely no shortage of water on this planet. As I said, there's you, you've got bizarre situations. Africa as, as a continent is probably one of the best examples because what you've got there is at the equator, you've got some of the highest rainfalls on the planet. And yet just north and south of the equator, you've got the Sahara Desert and the Namib Kalahari Deserts, two of the largest, driest regions of the world. Now, that's a normal pattern because of the way the atmosphere circulates. But what it means is that you've got excesses of water in one part of Africa and deficits of water in other parts of Africa. But there's a very different part of water, and you talked about it in the introduction you can live without love, as Daniel Patrick Moynihan said, you can live without love, but you can't live without water, yeah. right? Water is the key to life. And uh, whenever they go to other planets and other places, the one thing they're looking for is water. And, and so there is a moral component to water because the fact that you cannot live without it gives it a whole different tenor than any of the other resources and once you apply that moral component to it of course then the idea of who should own it how it should be used becomes very very different so to compare oil and water it to me is simply not sensible doesn't doesn't make any sense well tim it's interesting that henry kissinger said You control the oil, you control the nations, but you control the food and water, you control the people. And I mean, Nestle must be breathing a huge sigh of relief as the world targets Monsanto with a barrage of negative publicity. Because while we're all being distracted by Monsanto's GMO corruption of the food supply with these frankenfoods, Nestle is taking steps to profit off the natural world with patents on breast milk and medicinal plants and the privatization of water oh. and giving the seed company a run for the title of most evil corporation in the world. And between corporate demons like Nestle and Monsanto, the very right to life itself is becoming a commodity with the price tag, Tim, as access to food and water becomes a privilege only available to those who have the means to pay for it. Well, of course, and, and this is the issue. Um, 
one of the points I guess that I'm, I'm trying to make in this, in this uh, first go around about water is that there are three sectors of our society that are, are focusing upon water for different reasons. When we look at the globalists looking at water, uh, the ability to control, and as you, you quoting Henry Kissinger there, but we're also seeing the environmentalists using it and saying, oh, look, you know, you're polluting the water. Therefore, we've got to have environmental control. And we can talk about uh, that with the EPA in the U.S. and, and, and elsewhere. So the environmentalists are, are focused on water. But there's also the, the commercial and, and business uh, focus on water, which, of course, is what you're talking about with with uh, Monsanto and Nestle in June uh, 2004, Oppenheimer and other investment companies had a big session on, and it was organized through Wall Street, investing in the water industry. Okay, and what were the topics there? Issues to be addressed. Understand the trends in privatization of water utilities. Determine the interest rate sensitivity of water utilities. Learn which companies will benefit on rebuilding the water infrastructure. If you had invested in nothing but water-related stocks 20 years ago, you would have achieved a greater return on your investment than any other grouping of stocks you could have picked. Okay, so that's what the industry is doing. They're looking at this as a business opportunity. And, of course, they're interested in, you know, whether water is privatized or publicly owned and so on. And that's part of what we're discussing here. And and but even earlier than 2004, a former student of mine who has an investment company, he, he's a portfolio manager. He manages almost two billion dollars. And in 1991, he got an invitation to a conference in Milwaukee, also about water, buying and investing in water. And I said, well, why did you get invited? And he said, well, because I have $2 billion to invest. And only people with that kind of money were invited. He said, I don't want to go, but if you want to go in my place, fine. So who's sitting at the table discussing these things? Coca-Cola. Snapple, soft drink brands, Pepsi, all of these companies. And, of course, what were they looking at? Uh, Coca-Cola were on the verge of introducing their bottled water. The bottled water was just one option in their soft drink machine. Now you've got a whole machine that's nothing but Dasani water. Okay, and who were the ones pushing, oh, you need at least 12 liters of water a day, and if you don't drink, and and got everybody walking around with a bottle of water in their hands? It's complete nonsense. It was all created by Coke and, and these bottled water companies. It was all completely artificially created. And so what you've got then are three different groups all coming at the water with completely different objectives. And I think people need to understand that. But in order to understand that, they need to understand about, well, what what's the difference between public water and private water? What's the difference with regard to riparian laws on water or appropriative laws on water? Why are there different laws? How did the Romans 
deal with water, which was fundamental to their whole society. Emperors built at their own expense, massive baths for the Romans to bathe in. It was the focal point of their society. And to give you an idea, one set of baths in Rome, the roofs covered 25 acres over the baths. And, and so the Romans also, and so many of the terminologies that we use today, like aquifers and aqueducts and, and so on, these were all created by the Romans in their whole control. And who controlled? Augustus Caesar. The Caesars controlled the whole water industry. But people need to, to start to understand some of the fundamentals about water and uh, what's gone on with it in history, but also what's going on right now that they're not aware of. For example, the NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, was all about water. And people say, well, I looked at the agreement. This water's not even mentioned. Well, the one thing that you learn is that when politicians don't mention something, that's the issue. That's what you've got to watch. It's not what they're up front talking about. It's what's going on behind the scenes. And as I mentioned to you, these... these uh, uh, investing in industry kinds of, of meetings, most of the public have no idea that's going on at all. Haven't got a clue. Okay. And of course they, they operate on the, on that basis. And so the idea about knowledge about water, how we need to understand it, where it's located, who should have a right to it. We, we need to develop all of those things in this program and, and hopefully in one or two more so that people can understand. It's not necessarily that you're going to become an expert in it, but it's the point that it's people's lack of knowledge and understanding that allows these people to do things so that by the time the public catch up with it, it's already fait accompli. Now, I, me I mentioned the NAFTA agreement. You say, well, it's not water's not even mentioned. Well, we already had 80% free trade between Canada and the United States. Before the NAFTA, and even today, there's more free trade between Canada and the U.S. even before NAFTA than there is between the Canadian provinces. That's the, the irony of that whole thing. Now, how can I say that the whole NAFTA was about water? Well, the Canadian negotiator was a guy by the name of Simon Reisman. And what was Simon Reisman's career? What did it involve? It involved working for a company called the Grand Canal Company, which is a company that's planning to dam up James Bay on, on Hudson Bay, pump out the saline water, let it fill up with fresh water from the rivers flowing into it, then pump that water down through to Lake Huron, into the Chicago River and out to the American Midwest. He worked for that company, the Grand Canal Company. And and uh, so he's the chief Canadian negotiator. On the American side, the negotiator was a guy by the name of Clayton Yoiter. Y-E-U-T-T-E-R. Now, Clayton Yoiter worked as the Secretary of Agriculture for Ronald Reagan. But... Here is his background. His doctoral thesis was on the need for a continental water policy. That's what he did his doctoral thesis on. And after he was, he quit as, as, as uh, Reagan's agricultural secretary, he spent three years with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers calculating how much fresh water there was available in Canada. So these two guys then are the chief negotiators for the NAFTA. 
guess what? Guess what's going to be the major focus? And, of course, the way that it's done is that the, the free trade agreement says once something is declared a commodity, that is that it can be traded on the markets, that it has a unit price, then it automatically has to be traded at equal price between Canada and the U.S., Okay, we're very close to water becoming a commodity. In fact, in most cities, people pay for it on a per unit price. So, for example, in Winnipeg, you pay about $2.59 for a thousand gallons. And you go to different cities, you pay on the volume of water, you pay the amount of volume you use. So it's almost a commodity now. Once that happens, then... We have to have equal price available across North America. The other, the other thing is to say, well, how are you going to shift the water from Canada to the U.S.? Well, under the free trade agreement, it says it has a section called bulk carriers. Well, what does bulk carriers include? Well, it includes pipelines. Okay, and we talk about the, the uh, Keystone Pipeline and, and all of these other things. People have very little, few ideas about how, how many pipelines are currently crossing world borders and the Canada-U.S. border. And, and I have actually done some very small amount of technical research on the feasibility of a water pipeline from Canada to the U.S. because, of course, they've got to look at the temperatures and keeping the water from freezing in the pipeline. And, and so that was my interest in it. And, and so all of the components necessary for water to be uh, sold as a commodity, as a private good, across the Canada-U.S. border is already built into the free trade agreement. Now, another component of that's going on, again, that most people have no knowledge about at all, is there are four major schemes for transfer of water from Canada to the U.S. Now, why would that be going on? Well, the reason is because Canada has about one-third of the world's fresh water. Canada's got all kinds of resources, but the one resource we've got above all else that ultimately is the most valuable is the water. There are, as I said, there are four schemes. I've already mentioned one, the Grand Canal scheme, which is the uh, the scheme to dam James Bay and then pump the fresh water down through the uh, Chicago River to the American U.S. As you move west, you get into Manitoba, there's the Cooper scheme. And this was a scheme that was created by a, an engineering professor at the University of Manitoba. One of his students that worked on the scheme was the premier of the province of Manitoba, Gary Philman. And the Cooper scheme was to take all of that water in Manitoba, who on their bumper sticker has land of 100,000 lakes and divert that water down through the Red River down into the U.S. and out to the American Midwest. As you go further west, the largest scheme of all for diversion of water, north-south, is called the NAWAPA scheme. And that stands for the North America Water and Power Alliance, NAWAPA. It was proposed in 1952 by the Parsons Company out of Los Angeles. It was promoted because what happened in the U.S. was the country was formed in the east where there was lots of water supply. But as they went west, following Horace Greeley's 
order to go west, young man. Once they crossed the Mississippi, they went from an area of water surplus on an annual basis, that is, more rainfall coming in than water going out, they crossed the Mississippi into a water deficit region with more water going out than coming in. And the further west they went, the drier it got. And they got to California and they said, we're going to make this the land of milk and honey if it kills us. And they started diverting water. They started importing water. They started taking water over the Sierra Nevada mountains from the Colorado River and so on. But more importantly, when you just had the U.S. was the 13 original states east of the Mississippi, they had the same laws as Canada has, what we call the riparian laws, which are based upon Roman law. But once they got into the West and suddenly the water is in short supply, they changed their law. And I'll talk about the differences between the two laws in a minute. But they changed their law. And and so they have a very different legal system. Now, what's interesting about that is here we've signed this NAFTA agreement between two countries without taking into account that the fundamental legal philosophies for water between the two countries are 100% different. They're 180 degrees opposed to each other. Anyway, the NOAPA scheme then was pushed by a Senator Moss of Utah, and he said, look, we need water in this part of the world. Utah, Colorado, Wyoming, all these areas, we need water. And, of course, they started pumping water from the Ogallala Aquifer, which you mentioned that our friend Timon Pickens is buying into. But the NOAPA scheme was to divert water from the Yukon River in the Yukon of Canada which flows into Alaska, and therefore they said, look, you're not using that water. And under American law, if you're not using water, you lose it. You lose the right to it. And so they said, we're going to divert that water down through the Rocky Mountain Trench, which would create a lake 700 miles long, 40 miles wide, right down uh, on the eastern side of British Columbia, and flood that out so places like Creston and all those would be underwater. Then you pump that water into the Columbia River, into the Snake River, and into the Colorado River, and down to Southern California. That's a NOAPA scheme. It is still on the books. It's still being promoted. The hookup of the rivers on the American side is already complete. The only part of it that isn't done is the diversion of water from the Yukon down through British Columbia. That's the only part that's not completed with this scheme. The fourth scheme to divert water from the north to the south and into the southern United States is a pipeline from Alaska along the west coast of North America that would come from the panhandle of Alaska along the coast of British Columbia and down into California, providing a water, that water supply from Alaska. Those schemes are already being promoted and uh, the engineering work, a lot of it being done. So those are already in the books and yet virtually nobody knows about them. What I really want to get into though on this show, and I think this is so nefarious, Especially when it comes to, I was looking at the Clean Water Restoration Act, but the Clean Water Restoration Act goes far beyond the original intent of the law, which was the protection of waterfowl and the conservation of wetlands, because it's really the proverbial fly in the ointment has its roots in 
removal of the term navigable waters. And under the new guidelines, if you use well water, the EPA has jurisdiction over your property and can even forcibly evict people off their property. And if it rained overnight or you have runoff, say, from a recent snowfall and there's any resulting puddles on your property, this can result in a loss of the free use of your property. And you're subject to eviction from your land if your property resides above an underground water aquifer. I mean, this is right out of the Agenda 21 playbook, and it's actually, it's really to attack private property rights throughout North America, really. And this strategy dovetails nicely with something I recently talked about on another show with regard to the trapping and use of rainwater and the reuse of farm irrigation water. But here's the bottom line that I think is so strange. Why is it that there's one person who has almost more water than God, but he is not and he never will be regulated by the EPA. And you just mentioned his name and it's T. Boone Pickens. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, of course, uh, he's got enough money to see where these very large-scale projects, which are so great that even the government won't interfere with them. Well, I guess Uh, we could call it blue gold, because if water is the new oil, T. Boone Pickens is a modern-day John D. Rockefeller, because he owns more water than any other individual in the U.S., and he's looking to control even more. I mean, the Pickens water empire is free of EPA tyranny. Isn't that ironic? Oh, exactly. Let's let's go back, because, because jumping ahead to NAFTA and all of that stuff gives people an idea where all these things are going and giving them an idea of what's going on that they have no clue about. On a larger scale, of course, the one world government has to overcome national governments and it has to overcome particularly the United States because the United States is unique. It not just in the sense that uh, except American exceptionalism, that is one part of it, and American exceptionalism exists because they've created a state where every individual can develop their own potential to the maximum. Uh, it's like when I taught and I, I said to the students, look, my objective is to create an environment where you as individuals can use your abilities to their maximum potential. You can choose to do that or not. That's the beauty of America. You have that option. But when the United States was created, it was the first country in the world not only to designate free speech as the number one issue, but also to recognize that private ownership of land by an individual citizen was absolutely sacrosanct. Now, people right now, they're going on about because we're we're into the um, anniversary of the signing of the Magna Carta. And, and the lawyers all point to that as, oh, it's a great breakthrough in, in individual freedoms. No, it wasn't. The Magna Carta was because the big landowners, the Monsantos, the T. Boone Pickens of their day, didn't like the way that the king was treating them. Right. And and so they said, look, you you meet us and we're going to make you sign a document uh, where you will not be able to impinge your monarchical powers on us. And that was the Magna Carta that was signed as Runnymede. It had nothing to do with the peasants or their or private ownership of land. The pe- peasants were feudal serfs that lived on a, 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 a great big landowner's land and paid tax and uh, rent for that. They had no rights to their land whatsoever. 
America changed all that. And the reason that America changed it was because the revolution that occurred in America was actually carried out by British people who knew exactly what the next step was beyond a monarchy, that it was the need for a republic in which the individual citizens had control. So the founding fathers were either first generation out of England or had come directly from England, and England itself never had a people's revolution. France had one, and it was a disaster, but the people's revolution of England actually occurred in the United States as the American Revolution, and built right into that was that every citizen had the right to own their own piece of property, and that has stuck in the craw of the people that you and I have talked so much about, the Prince Philips of the world, the people of the Club of Rome, these feudal, monarchical, maniacal, controlling group of people. And, and of course, what represents the challenge to them more than any other country in the world is the United States with the idea that people could own their own land. Now, every time uh, that they've tried to find a way to get around that, of course, the courts and the laws and the founding fathers protected private property, the, the right of domain and so on. You've seen some challenges to it. You've seen where cities developed the ability that if they wanted to build something that was for the public good, and there's those terms coming in again, they had the right to appropriate a private citizen's property. And there have been some terrible instances and battles over that going on in the U.S., but what they finally realized, the EPA and the Obama administration and, and that, that group, was, look, we can take the Water Rights Act and simply adapt it and adopt it to taking over your land. Because fresh water, clean water is above all else. It's essential to life. And there we come back into that morality thing again. And that if you have water on your property and you're not keeping it clean and not looking after it, then you forego the right to that land. And that's what the EPA are doing. And they're doing it to the point where they come on your land and even if you just got a puddle, they can say, oh, yep, you're not, that water, you got dirt and polluted water. That's it. We're taking over your property. And so they're using the Water Rights Act, as you said, for what it wasn't designed for at all, and simply using it to bypass that fundamental private ownership of land that was so essential to the establishment of America. Well, America's the victim of a three-pronged attack, which is designed to control all water, ultimately, through one, the Clean Water Act, to EPA controls all the water. Actually, it's four yep. things. The EPA yep. controls all water. And as a yep. result of controlling all the water, the EPA will become, it'll, it'll essentially, the EPA will come to naturally control all food production. And since all property has some degree of water on it, the EPA is, in effect, the draconian landlord over everyone's property. Yep. And, and you know, just to, to illustrate that point, there are two things that I can mention. One is the Tennessee Valley Authority, TVA. During the, the, the Depression in the dirty 30s, the government in Washington 
decided that they needed to build up the economy of a, a very large region of the U.S., the Tennessee Valley area. And so they set up a water management scheme and power production scheme that, that essentially socialized um, the whole economy of that region. And at that point, governments in, the, in Washington realized that through the use of water and the input of money into water projects, they could effectively control a whole economy of a region and therefore the whole people. That's the reason, by the way, when you look at the World Bank, what's the one thing they do when they want to get control of a region? They fund large-scale dam projects around the world because they know that if if you invest money into water and water projects, that it gives you immediate control of everything. It gives you control of the energy, gives you control of the food production and everything. So the World Bank uses these very large-scale water projects to take control. I can give you another example. Of in Brazil, they had a government that wanted to develop hydroelectric dams and so on. And so... They went to Canadian banks, one in particular, to lend them $7 billion to build these dams. The bank lent them the money. A new government took over. A socialist government took over. The minute the dams were finished, they said, that's fine. We nationalized those projects, and you, can, you bank, you can go whistle for your money. And who paid for that? The Canadian people, because what the banks did was in order to cover that loss of that money, they widened the gap between how much they paid you on a savings account and how much they charge you to borrow money. It used to be about one and a half percent. They pushed it out to four and five percent in order to cover that loss uh, because of what Brazil had done. So there's all kinds of examples of how water used for large scale projects and very large control. And of course, on a on a national scale, that's what the EPA are doing. The, speaking of the EPA, it's just so yep. interesting that we you know we we're talking about Pickens there, T Boone Pickens. Yep. What's fascinating to me when you get into the MPA is, again, the Pickens Water Empire is free of EPA tyranny. And I started kind of researching what that was all about. And it's interesting that Pickens isn't content with his newfound power over Texas water supplies. He's in the process, Tim, of greatly expanding his control over water as he petitioned Congress in the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee to expand his public water district's uh, power of imminent domain and right-of-way so that he can operate across state lines as well. And if that's fully granted, Pickens will control all the water between Texas and South Dakota, and he's in the process of doubling down as he's added his previous wind projects to the water district by proposing a vast $12 billion wind farm to sit on the same land that he's acquiring for his water pipeline. And the cost of this water pipeline is about $1.5 billion, which is being funded by taxpayers' expense through bonds and low-interest loans. But here's the kicker. Pickens told Business Week, and people can look this up, that he's only planning on selling surplus water because according to the United Nations Research and Scientific Studies report, nearly two-thirds of the entire population inhabiting the planet will face severe life-threatening water shortages by the year 2025. So what surplus could you be talking about, Pickens? And you only thought you had to worry about Obama collapsing the economy through his socialist policies? 
Yeah, but but this is the hypocrisy of all of these people uh, of, of the left wing, the socialist persuasion, and the capitalists like like T Boone Pickens. You see, they say all sorts of things, but none of it applies to them. Right? But how does it, he not mute any EPA resistance? Isn't that a big glowing, well, glaring it, red it, flag? Well, of course, but but look at the Obamacare. Obama decides who it applies to. He didn't. It didn't apply to the unions. It didn't apply to the people in Congress. This is the hypocrisy of these people. Oh yeah, we all got to share. We all got to carry our burden. Oh, but uh, my friend doesn't have to. Oh no, but okay. Well, I'll let you off the hook. Or apparently the Bush family, because it's it's actually well chronicled, Tim, that the Bush family is moving to acquire massive amounts of water in South America, including the continent's larger underground water aquifer. The Bush family has built an extensive ranch on some 100,000 plus acres of the labor provided by the Army Corps of Engineers. I mean, there's another example of crony capitalism. Right. But that's... The uh, great hypocrisy of it is it doesn't matter whether you're Democrat or Republican, left or right. They all will look after themselves and their friends. It doesn't matter. This idea, I mean, this is the whole hypocrisy of Obama. Oh, well, you know, we're going to have a a, a completely different America. We're not going to have these Wall Street capitalists and so on. Who got more money from Wall Street than Obama? It was incredible funding for Obama. What about Jeffrey Immelt with GE? Oh, well, yeah, okay, well, I'll, I'll look after you. We'll get rid of the light bulbs and we'll, we'll pass legislation so that people have got to have the light bulbs that only GE can produce. Yeah. And, and this is where the religious part of it comes into it for me. Because what is going on is the fundamental weaknesses of human nature and humanity they're exploited by the devil and the devil doesn't care who you are or what color or what shape you are the devil will exploit that greed the devil will exploit that fear and so everybody all of this greed and and it doesn't matter as i said whether you whether you're promoting socialism equal wealth and equal this and that and the other um, and that, of course, is wrapped up in Lord Acton's comment that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. He doesn't say that it, it only applies to, you know, Prince Philip or the capitalists. It applies to everybody. And, and of course, it's also why George Washington said, don't ever elect anybody that wants to be your leader. It's quite clear yeah. that while the EPA is moving towards a control of water, food and yeah. property rights, thus paving the way for globalist crony capitalists to obtain control over the nation's water and food supply as well as usher in a society which has no private property rights which is stunning it's also becoming increasingly clear to him that the globalists are buying up our water rights and are planning to sell it back to us at exorbitant rates and this is the horror game scenario you know only the elite will one day control all the water food and property rights and then can therefore pretty much hold humanity hostage in servitude to the whims of the global elite. That's the big playbook. Exactly. And until you have a world that has a moral Christian basis, that isn't going to change. And, of course, you see the whole point about getting rid of Christianity which, of course, uh, really has been going on for centuries, but um, it really started uh, in in the Western world with Darwin, uh, the atheist. People have no moral ethics or, or 
anything. They'll do whatever is necessary to become wealthy and get ahead. And one of the things that that when you look at the United States is that they revere people that have a lot of money and they don't care how you made it. Look at Al Capone. How did he make all that money? What did they nail him with? Income tax evasion. Oh, don't worry. Yeah. (laughs) Don't worry about prostitution and drugs and killing of people and killing of judges. Oh, no, none of that. No, that's important. Okay. He didn't pay his taxes. And why was that a problem? Well, that's un-American. It's your American duty to pay your taxes so that we can, government. Well, somebody should tell Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton that. Of course. Exactly. Exactly. But this is, this is the thing. So, uh, until we've got a society to the level where a moral code of Christianity can apply, then you will see this exploitation of person by person and group by group. It won't change. I mean, as we are now, it's always been well known. If you took all the money in the world and distributed evenly to everybody, that within probably 20 years, 90% or more of it would be right back where it is now because there are avaricious, unconscionable people with no morality, no ethics that will do whatever they can to grab that money and grab the control. And that's the difficulty. By the way, the other thing is that when you look at classic literature, one of the main themes of classic literature is the miser. And if you remember in the Bible, the most misquoted thing in the Bible, people say, oh, money is the root of all evil. But the Bible doesn't say that. The love of the money. The love of money. Exactly. Exactly. And by the way, when, when Osama bin Laden said the West has lost its moral direction, he was absolutely right. He was absolutely right. And that's that. what we're talking about is what's going on. The problem is I don't want his morality either. Because if you look at what's going on with Sharia law, where women have to cover up because the men can't control and don't want to control themselves. I mean, what, what have we got going on here? I mean, think about this world. It is at the point of insanity, Sheila, when you've got governments, and this is again, this is the uh, the the socialist views of John Maynard Keynes. Oh, how do you get out of debt? Oh, you go deeper into debt. That is so insane that you you can't believe that governments could sell that idea. The neon flashing sign here is that the globalists never miss an opportunity to promote some false paradigm of overpopulation. No, those are always the tentacles of this because the globalists are proclaiming overpopulation to be the new threat to humanity of course global warming is tied in there we talk a lot about the climate change you know people are finally waking up to the man-made climate change fraud so the globalists have to shift gears a little bit here exactly they've got to keep the sky is falling transnational uh, agendas and of course behind all of it as you said yes the, the argument that the world's overpopulated and and we've got this bizarre circumstance where the pope who represents a church that doesn't even allow birth control, and yet he's signing up with the global warming people who are all about reducing the world's population by any means necessary, including forced abortions. And those ideas were promoted by John Holdren, who's Obama's science czar. And so, and guess but, where John Holdren got this? 
you know, he let the yep. Marxian striped cat out of the bag when he divulged that he was a big, guess who, it's really interesting because it's really Holdren and Thomas Malthus that are like the conjoined twins. And it's yep. really steeped in Marxism. It is a very, you know, that yep. blood red flag of Marxism is really at the root of this green agenda. Truly, truly nefarious. Yeah, oh, exactly. And, and of course, you see, that's another side of it because uh, Darwin, who you could argue represents capitalism, survival of the fittest, um, he published in 1859. Marx had published eight years earlier. And yet you say to people, well, Marx published before Darwin. They say, oh, you're crazy. Marx is 20th century. No, he wasn't. He was before Darwin. The Communist Manifesto was was eight years before before um, I think it was eleven years before uh, Darwin published. So out of those two ideas came the two fundamental failed socioeconomic systems we got today: capitalism and communism. Well, and, and Marx would have Karl Marx would have salivated it. Wouldn't he have the idea of using phony junk pseudoscience? to push the world into this idea that you are controlling the natural atmosphere. I mean, like I said, Marx would have salivated at the idea that these, you know, this cabal of collectivists have pushed the very air we breathe. They've hijacked that. It's just stunning how dumbed and numbed the population is that they can't see this. No, they, they don't see it. But here's the interesting thing, that both capitalism and communism Unfortunately, at the current rate, it's going to be filled by total global socialism, which is deadly. But capitalism is failing because it exploits human greed. Communism failed because it didn't allow for human greed. It just said it doesn't exist. We're not going to let it exist. It did, of course, exist. I was talking to somebody the other day, talking about uh, the estimates are that Putin's got $400 billion in Swiss banks. We know that Yeltsin's daughter, uh, Yeltsin, was given $40 billion in order to get out of the way, you know, let Putin take over. So, uh, and, and the Swiss bank accounts, I mean, th this is where uh, the, all of the money is hidden. The Swiss are the pimps of the world. The, the, the only reason the money is in there is because it's illegal money, ill-gotten gains, and they don't want anybody to know about it. And until those sorts of things are are, are eliminated, then all of this other things uh, about power groups and taking over, that's where it's got to start. One, one of the things that's going on around the world, yeah, what the Swiss did was that they cut their currency loose. That is, they unpe unpegged it from the dollar. A lot of countries are, are starting to do this. And, of course, the dollar uh, has been the standard currency for the world, but a lot of people don't want that. The Swiss don't want that. De Gaulle didn't want that. That's why de Gaulle said, look, I've got, I've got two billion American dollars, and on the dollar it says we will pay the, pay the bearer in gold. So he went to Lyndon Johnson and said, here's my two billion dollars, I want the gold equivalent. Johnson, of course, who'd lied to the American people and had spent all the, or most of the gold in Fort Knox to pay for the, for the uh, uh, Vietnam War, right. couldn't pay de Gaulle. And so they had to take the dollar uh, off the 
the gold standard, which was $32 to the ounce, and it ballooned up to, well, it went up, what is it, $1,500 in the ounce now. So all of these machinations of money. And then look at Nixon did. He flooded the world with the Federal Reserve notes. It took us off the gold standard. Yeah, but that's what Hitler did. I mean, Hitler was the biggest producer of forged money in the history of the world and and that's why uh, every once in a while and they did a, an episode on on mash about this where uh, every once in a while to get rid of the forged money they they would the government would produce new money and say okay you come in on this certain day turn over the old money and we'll give you the new money for it well, of course, if if you had illegal money, then then that was eliminated. I think we should do that right now. But of course, there's so much illegal money, so much hidden money that that it wouldn't work anymore. Well, as uh, of today, the traditional safe haven Swiss franc was lower amid relief over the deal of the USD. You know, climbing yep. to 1.25 percent. So, and the yep. euro was also slightly higher against the Swissy. So, interesting right. what's going on with all the currency. Okay, and and who's the other person that made a fortune? I mean, literally a fortune, one of the richest men in the world. George Soros made money. Yeah, he made all of his money in trading in currencies to the point where 17 smaller nations who couldn't get anybody to, to help them, they got together and issued a decree to Soros to say, leave us alone, stop destroying our economies and our people. Well, look what he did to the uh, Japanese currency. Yep, and Japan's in 20 years of recession. Tim, please come back tomorrow and we will do a part two of this show because there is so much more to get into. Folks, I appreciate you tuning in tonight and a big shout out to all the folks at WWCR and our other affiliates, as well as people that are simulcasting this. Don't forget to tune in tomorrow for part two of this discussion. There's much more to get into on the water topic, the currency, the state of affairs. It'll be a good discussion. So don't forget to tune in tomorrow. That's part two of this discussion. And in the meantime, go to weekendvigilante.com. Folks, if you have not added me on your social media, please do so. And please also, to get the podcast, add me on Podomatic. There is a direct link on the website. And as well, sign up for the free monthly newsletter, which comes once a month. And there's really good information on that. So I hope you do go to weekendvigilante.com. Sign up for that free newsletter. And as well, if you're interested in joining us every Wednesday At 4 o'clock Eastern Time, we have a powerful prayer group. It's a conference calling number, and people pray from across the nation. It's a very powerful prayer time group. Folks, thank you so much for tuning into the broadcast today. Good night, and God bless. The Sheila Zielinski Show is sponsored by SteveQuayle.com, offering a wide variety of products, links, headlines, and information for the end times. Order Steve's new book, Little Creatures, by visiting stevequail.com. Dare to discover, learn, prepare, and be amazed.